let's do the sermon. All right, let me pray again. Lord, as we open your word, um, I know, Jesus, you, you often said, for him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And uh, Lord, we pray for ears to hear. Speak to us this morning, and uh, may we not just be hearers, but doers of the word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember, kind of to orient us where we are, we're going through Luke's gospel. We are finishing up chapter 20. Um, In the first part of the chapter, Jesus, uh, and in the end of of 19, in the beginning of 20, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He knows he's going there to die. We see the triumphal entry. He pauses and he weeps over Jerusalem. So we see the triumphal entry. We see the tears over Jerusalem. Then he cleanses the temple. You could call it the temple cleansing or the turning of the tables. Right? Triumphal entry, tears, turning of the tables. And then last week out at the school, we covered the next section where the religious authorities come to Jesus and they say, hey, we have a question for you. Who do you think you are? By what authority do you do these things? And we talked about Christ's authority and then spiritual authority in general, but we see that the religious leaders do not like him. They are out to trap him. They are actually out to kill him. So, Um, next week we're going to see they try to trap him, or actually, yeah, next week we'll see that they try to trap him again. Um, But in the middle of this opposition, Jesus tells a parable, the parable of the tenants, of the, the vineyard tenants. So let's take a look at this parable that he tells in front of everybody. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants. So he owns the land, and farmers are going to rent this land. And he went to another country for a long while. Again, an indication that, that Christ's second coming is going to, t- it's going to be a while. Right? When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. So this is them paying their rent. Uh, he is sending a, uh, an official, a servant, to collect some of the fruit. Now, um, I've read that, that a tenant farmer could owe up to one half of his crop to the landowner. We don't know. It doesn't even really matter how much it is. But this is, uh, this is him collecting rent. He sends a servant. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. 
But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Why would they react that way? Because they know that the vineyard is Israel. This is a terrifying parable. Jesus concludes it with this, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? Now he's going to quote from Isaiah. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, um, we could spend an awful lot of time analyzing every detail of the parable, but I want to I want to get to the heart of it as quickly as possible so we can spend most of our time applying it to ourselves and, and really to uh, the church in general, okay? But let's make sure we have all the pieces of the puzzle figured out. The vineyard is Israel. In fact, um, in Isaiah chapter 5, God sings a song, a love song to Israel, and the metaphor he uses is that Israel is a vineyard. And uh, we know that from Isaiah 5, 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So in essence, Jesus is picking up Isaiah's metaphor, and everybody would have said, oh, okay, this is a story about a vineyard. We know that Jesus here in the parable is referring to Israel. The vineyard owner, obviously, is God. The tenant farmers, who are they? Well, they are those in charge of Israel, the leaders of Israel, the priests, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, those who had official positions. They are those who are overseeing Israel right now. Who are the servants that the owner sends? Those are the Old Testament prophets whom God sent to Israel again and again and again, and they were mostly rejected. Some of them killed. I don't know if you know this, um, but, but tradition says that Isaiah, the way he died is he was put in a hollow tree log and sawn in half. So he was the first one to do the sawing in, sawing in half thing. All right. What is the, the concept of, of the servants coming to collect fruit and them being rejected, the, the, the tenants refusing to hand over fruit? Well, that's a picture of the leaders of Israel hijacking God's people and hijacking God's glory and keeping it for themselves. So the owner says, I know, I'll send my son. They'll listen to him. And 
if we were in a, a large group, I would say, who do you think the son is in the story? And somebody would meekly raise their hand and say, Jesus? Ding, 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 ding. Yes, that is Jesus. He is about to be killed in a few days here in Jerusalem. And then the story ends with Jesus telling kind of a parable within a parable. He, he quotes from Isaiah, and um, he uses a building analogy. What then is this that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone. So picture these leaders of Israel. They're going to build a temple, and they're sorting through the stones to build it, and they find one. They go, this isn't even worthy of, of our use, and they reject the stone, but... God takes the stone that's rejected, it's, uh, it's Christ, and he becomes the most important stone in the temple. He is the cornerstone. And then Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone, and the, the Greek word there, scandalon, who, who stumbles on that stone, will be broken to pieces. Those who stumble over Christ and reject him, they're going to meet their demise. They're going to be broken into pieces. And then guess what? And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. There is a final day of judgment coming. So, so this is really a parable of judgment upon Israel. It is also a call to repentance for those who have ears to hear, that they would hear it and they would repent and they would turn to Christ. Now, Here's the key. Here's the main thing I want us to get out of it. The handing over of the vineyard to others is a picture of the coming shift where God will now shift his focus away from the nation of Israel, and he will now focus on the rest of the nations. This is after Jesus ascends into heaven, the gospel is preached in Jerusalem, but then it spreads, and the Gentiles are included into the people of God. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus sums up this parable this way. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, vineyard and vineyard owners, and given to a people, the word is ethnos, it can be translated Gentiles, producing its fruits. The Gentiles are now going to be included and given the kingdom, and they will produce the fruits that the, the owner of the vineyard deserves. You know, um, this same concept of the, the shift from Israel to the people of God now, including the Gentiles, Paul uh, uses another agricultural metaphor in Romans chapter 11. Now, by the time Paul writes this, um, the gospel has already spread uh, throughout the Gentile world. And now, in the Roman church, it was primarily Gentile, but there were a handful of Jews, and Paul detected that uh, the Gentiles were becoming kind of proud and arrogant. So he says, now, wait a minute. 
um, the, the, let's use an olive tree as a picture. The olive tree represents the people of God, and the natural branches are, are broken off. Most of Israel has been broken off of this olive tree, and you Gentiles, your wild olive branches, you have been grafted in. So now uh, the trunk uh, is, is based on the patriarchs and, and uh, the Jewish nation, but now Gentiles have, have been grafted in, and they're flourishing, but they had a tendency now to become proud. So here's what he says in Romans 11.20. They, the, the Jewish branches, were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast, though, or through faith. All right? They've been broken off. You've been grafted in. You're in by faith. So do not become proud. Okay, here he's addressing their arrogance. Well, we're the people of God now. But fear, why? For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So here's what I'm doing. I'm saying, look at the parable. God handed the vineyard over to another people. In, the, in another metaphor, he broke off the natural branches and grafted in Gentile branches. But now, here's the application. Just as God handed the vineyard over, he was done, and he handed it over to a new people, we now, the, the church, we need to not become proud, but fear for there's a threat here. If he didn't spare Israel, neither will he spare you. Now, let me, let me clarify something here. Some people read this and they go, is Paul teaching that you can lose your salvation? No, I, I, don't, I don't think this is talking about individual salvation being lost. I, I believe the the... Uh, the, the vineyard parable and the olive tree analogy, right, is teaching that over a short period of time, entire generations of people can retain the outward form of being the people of God, but never really be true believers. In other words, in our case, there's churches that retain the form of Christianity, but it's only a name, it's only the rituals, it's only the form, and before long, the entire formally Christian culture can collapse, right? I, I think, uh, uh, well, first of all, there's the example of Israel, okay? I, I think if you look at Europe, Europe, for hundreds of years, was the center of Christendom. Today, it's virtually dead. There are church buildings all over Europe, beautiful cathedrals, but they're pretty much museums. When we've been to London and to Ireland, there's some beautiful cathedrals. 
you can go to. And uh, you can even go to what they call evening tide. It's in the afternoon and there's a choir and uh, the formality. And it's usually just tourists who are observing this, but it's, it's not the people, right? The, Christmas is still a national holiday in Europe. C.S. Lewis is uh, a favored son, but it's dead. Christianity is dead. Now, I have seen the American church head in the same direction before my very eyes. I have seen it, right? You say, well, do you have any hard data? Let me, uh, let me quote just a paragraph from an article um, the Pew Research uh, Organization surveyed the spiritual tone of, of America last year. Uh, author Bonnie Kirsten writes this, uh, as a new Pew Research report unsparingly explains, the decline of Christianity in the United States continues at a rapid pace. A bare 65% of Americans now say they're Christians. That's down from 78% as recently as 2007. The ranks of the religiously unaffiliated, that's called the nuns, not nuns like with habits, but those who when asked on a survey, well, what's your religion? Okay, are you Muslim? Are you Buddhist? Are you Christian? Are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? Are you, what are, what are you? They answer none. All right. The ranks of the religiously unaffiliated have swelled from 16 to 26 percent over the same period. If this rate of change continues, the U.S. will be majority non-Christian by about 2035. That's just 15 years from now. Less than 50 percent will. And, and these aren't even necessarily true believers. These are just those who check off. I'm a Christian. Okay, with the nuns representing well over one third of the population. Let me give you some more quick stats. Um, Seventy percent of churchgoers. Now we're not we're, we're talking about those who actually go to church. Seventy percent of churchgoers never share their faith, and you go, why is why would they not share their faith? Well, I think this statistic lets you know. Sixty nine percent which is pretty much the 70% of churchgoers believe everyone will go to heaven. We've lost the urgency. We've lost the gospel in many churches. 52% of Christians believe non-Christian faith can lead to eternal life. So what's, what's the big deal? Everybody's going to heaven anyways, right? So there's a shell. There's a form of Christendom but there's no urgency because everybody's going to heaven anyways, right? For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to call us to wake up and be aware of four areas where, where and, and, I, and I'm not, i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach this, not just to Valley Brook, but I'm going to, let's pretend the whole, let's pretend the American church is watching. Okay. Hi America. And I'm going to preach this 
to the American church. And I want to point out that we are on our way to becoming Europe. We're on our way to becoming first century Israel. And I want to point out four apostasy indicators. Apostasy means falling away from the truth. Okay. And uh, so therefore, these are four uh, areas we need to wake up and repent in. And it's a, it's a call uh, to, to repent of these areas and cling to Christ. So let me give you the four areas. First, in the area of preaching. And more specifically here, what I'm talking about is the kind of preaching people want and people tolerate. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 4. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, you know what I noticed that I never noticed before in this verse? Notice that Paul is not saying the teachers and the preachers are the primary problem here. Who's to blame? Those with itching ears who want their ears scratched or or tickled. Yeah, if you if you have a dog, you know they love to have their ears scratched and the dog will go, Oh yeah, I love that. And what he's saying, that's what that's what's going on here. People want to be told what their own passions want to hear. All right. But you can't have ear scratching teachers without a market for them. Now, I could launch off on the whole crazy world of the prosperity gospel preachers who have literally millions of followers who preach a gospel that basically says this, uh, trust in Jesus and he will give you health, wealth, and happiness. And I would think that a truly saved child could listen to them and say, that's crazy. That's not what the Bible is teaching yet. Millions have wandered off and you say, why would they listen? Because their issue is not to hear what God wants to say. They have itchy ears that want to be told what they want to hear. Okay. So um, we could talk a whole bunch about that, but I'm going to move a little closer to home. I'm more concerned with kind of the mainstream evangelical church and how influenced we have become over the last 40 years with the seeker-friendly movement and the church growth movement and how it has subtly affected so many churches that have turned many of them into holding grounds for unsaved people, okay? Now, um, back in the 70s 
in the early 80s. I got I became a follower of Christ in 1982 and I saw this all happen, okay? What churches did in mass in in huge numbers if, is they've said let's be more sensitive to the unbeliever. Let's become more um, welcoming to what you would call the seeker, which by itself is not a bad thing, right? So how are we going to do that? Let's focus on excellence and quality and more contemporary music. And let's be careful of using Christian lingo uh, in the sermon. And let's welcome and let's have a nice parking lot and a nicely manicured lawns. And, and um, let's present the service in a, a more professional way. Not, none of that actually necessarily bad, but here's the Achilles heel. When the preacher's filter in his study and his delivery is no longer, how can I faithfully communicate the word of God? And by the way, I think you can faithfully communicate the word of God to people who are not familiar with Christianity. So I think you should be, you should be thinking through, are they going to understand what I'm saying? That's all fine. But when the filter is no longer my role as a communicator, an accurate communicator of God's word, when that filter gets replaced with, how can I interest and keep and not scare away the unbelieving visitor. That is, when that becomes the filter, inevitably the gospel message is going to be so dim that people aren't going to be truly saved. The gospel, yes, it is good news. It is good news about what Christ has done to save a people. He died on a bloody cross. But that good news makes no sense without dealing with the fact that sin is sin, and we are to call sinners to repentance and to die and to bow the knee to Christ as Lord. So the good news of the gospel involves something disturbing, a radical call to die and follow Christ. And let's face it, there is no way to make that call appealing to a person who doesn't want to hear it. So in the name of numbers, that gets so dimmed down that the unbeliever feels comfortable sitting in a church. Yes, there's Bible talk. There's Jesus talk. There's singing. But is there a radical call to follow Christ? With the wrong filter, let's put it this way, the, the filter of being a herald, an accurate proclaimer of God's word, when that gets replaced with becoming a salesman, masses of people never truly get born again. The forms are retained, but the heart is never changed. So here's a heart check. Can you discern if the preaching 
in your church, and I'm talking to all of America here, okay, can you discern if the preaching in your church comes from faithfulness to the Word of God, or have the edges been so sanded off that even an unbeliever will always enjoy it? Now, I admit it's hard to evaluate that because the landscape has been so changed. So here's a question, a call to repentance. Are you, for, for your own spiritual health and your family's own spiritual health, are you willing to check your ears to make sure they're not itchy ears that you want scratched by one of these people that Paul is talking about? So first apostasy indicator, the preaching, the itchy-eared preaching are you aware of it? Are you able to discern what is truly from God and what is just ear scratching? Let me give you another one, pornography. You go, what? Where did that come from? I'm convinced that Satan has used pornography to spiritually neutralize an entire generation of men. Could do a whole message here on on how pornography ruins marriages, how it exploits women, how it's more more addictive than cocaine, how it literally rewires the brain to make you less than human when addicted. Okay, but here's what I what I want to focus on in the context of this message, on the context uh, of not becoming broken off. Okay. I'll never forget when John Piper, and I tried to find the message in the, the writing, but I, I couldn't. But I remember Piper talking about how pornography is neutralizing pastors, missionaries, and men in local churches. How? Well, those engaged in this secret sin and addicted are guilt-ridden unless, unless their consciences have been so seared that they no longer have a conscience, right? But they're so guilt-ridden that they feel like hypocrites. It would be hypocritical to get baptized. It would be hypocritical to preach boldly, to serve radically, so they live in a state of spiritual paralysis. So they might attend church, they might even lead church, but radically and radically calling people to follow Christ, to radically evangelize, to take risks. No, no, I'm, I'm just not that guy. Now, you say, how do I overcome this? I think there is hope, all right? But here's, here's what you got to want. You got to want true delight more than false delight. You got to believe this verse is true. Psalm 63.3 says, Because your steadfast love, your hesed, your, your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. 
if you really believe that God's love and knowing it and experiencing it is better than anything else in life, you wouldn't fall for the duplicate, for the false duplicate. And, and this is, you know, we mentioned Piper. His whole thing is bank your life on, God, on following Christ being the best thing there is. You have to replace the false ple- pleasure with a higher true pleasure. Right? You, you need to realize that pornographic impurity blinds us to truly seeing God. Jesus said this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The blinders distort our view of God, and the distorted view of God keeps us trapped in this false illusion of finding true joy. So, I think if we're going to see revival men, we need to get serious. You know, um, there are a lot of people who are willing to live in a state of feeling bad. Oh, I'm struggling. I'm struggling, but not truly repenting. And I'm not saying it is an easy battle, but there's a difference between, oh, I feel bad. Oh, I feel bad. And repenting and throwing your life into Christ as your joy. All right, let me give you a third thing. Parenting. By the way, these all begin with P. Um, in the Old Testament story, there's a generation that Moses leads out. God calls them out of Egypt, and they go into the desert for 40 years, and that generation dies off because they are unfaithful. But a new generation rises up, and Joshua leads them into the promised land, and they uh, defeat in, in, in majority, the Canaanites. And the book of Judges begins with this, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. But then look what happens. And all that generation, Joshua's generation, were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. The children didn't know God, and they didn't know the mighty works of God. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the the idols, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. And now, while it it may be that this generation is not referring specifically to the next generation, look how quickly this happens. Faithful Joshua's generation, and then another generation after this, and they, they don't even know God. Now, these verses don't explicitly say that the generation went to went astray due to lack of of godly parenting, okay? But it does say that this unfaithful generation didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done. Somehow, they had lost sight of who God was, all right? Now, maybe this generation just went astray, not due to lack of education, 
but because they had everything handed to them. They didn't go through the desert. They didn't fight the Canaanites. They were just given everything. So uh, let me say this, kids that are listening, youth that are listening, you are responsible, regardless of the generation that goes before you, regardless of whether your parents are the, the greatest godly Christians in the world or whether they're hypocrites, you are responsible yourself to choose to follow the Lord. Okay? Now, regardless, though, um, we are parents. We are given this clear command that we have a responsibility to train up our children in the faith. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, you know how you do that? Legalism. You just, bunch of rules. It's not relationship-based. It's just, it's not relationship with you. It's not a relationship with the Lord. It's just rules, 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 do this. And they, are, they become seething with anger, all right? But what are we to do? We're to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Okay. What I want us to see, parents, is that we're the ones who are responsible. Not the Christian school, though, if you send them to Christian school, that's great. Not even the church program, okay, but you. Now, you go, am I, am I disregarding? No, I, if I were you, I would take advantage of everything the church can offer to help. I'd have them in youth group. I'd have them in D2. I'd have them stay after for second hour whenever that comes back. I, I would take advantage of everything Miss Ashley labors so hard to give. But ultimately, especially fathers, you have to step up and embrace that responsibility. Now you go, I don't, I don't know how to do it. What curriculum should we use? You know what? And, and this is just me talking off the top of my head. We didn't follow a curriculum. Now, we bought, we bought a children's Bible, and we had Bible time at night. And we'd read a story and talk about it, and we'd act it out. All right? And then when they got older, you know what we did? We had them read the Bible on their own, and we talked about it. And it wasn't we're having a certain amount of time where we designate it to, to Bible time, though you may want to do that. You may want to have family devotions, but we just talked about it. What, uh, just in your own reading, I hope you are reading and studying. I hope you're going to a small group and you're studying. Talk about it at the dinner table as you're driving. Talk about the Word of God. When you go to church, do you talk about the sermon? I don't mean how bad it was. I mean what God said through it. Okay, so, so there are different things you can use. You can try different curriculums, and you can read our daily bread, and you can have a Bible reading. I, I don't want to dump that whole thing on you now, but here's, here's the missing piece for a lot of people. What you love the most communicates to your children. If they can tell you don't really love the Lord as number one. You're just going through the motions. What you're teaching them just by your life is not to love the Lord, but how to go through the motions of loving the Lord. And at some point they say, 
why fake it? I don't need this. Right. And I, 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 I want to be careful. I don't want to put all the blame on the parents. You know, you could be the greatest father in the world. You know, the prodigal son father, he had two, two children, one, the prodigal and the legalist. All right. There, there is an element here where it's out of your hands. On the other hand, we are responsible to live out Ephesians 6.4. So here's an evaluation. What do I truly love? What do my kids see me love as number one? Some would have to say, that's Netflix, or it's sports, or it's my job. And, and let, me, let me touch on this, because I'm seeing this more and more politics. If these are your true love, your children are going to say, I, we went to church, but it didn't mean anything. So let me, let me end on this P word here, political idolatry. Okay, now don't get me wrong. I am a news guy. I love the news. I like keeping up with this upcoming election. Have you heard there's going to be an election um, this, this coming, I think, uh, November-ish, all right? Um, and uh, there's lots of talk about it. And I, I, I pay attention. Okay. But here's my concern. I have seen Christians so preoccupied with political issues that they've literally fallen into depressions, obsessions, have had meltdowns. And, and here's, here's the real issue. They become so passionate that they end up despising people on the other team. So much so that the opportunity to share the gospel with those people has been lost due to the wall that has been erected. All right? Satan's having a field day by having Christians sabotage the eternal mission, saving souls from hell. We've sabotaged that by replacing it with the temporal mission, a political mission. Again, am I saying you shouldn't pay attention? No, I'm not saying that. Should you not talk about it? Nope, not saying that. It's your heart, right? So, so let me close with this. The next paragraph that we come across in Luke 20 is another confrontation. And it's two groups of people who come up to Jesus to trap him. And in Matthew's gospel, we're told that it is uh, the, the Pharisees who hated Rome and hated Herod the king and hated Pilate. And they team up with the Herodians, this would be the Jews, who said, hey, let's get along with Herod. There's the pro-Herod and the anti-Herod teams that hate each other, but they unite to trap Jesus. And they ask him 
a dangerous question, all right? Here's the question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not, or to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, why is this a dangerous question? If Jesus says, yeah, pay your taxes, then the Pharisees go to the people who hated Rome, and they say, hey, he's a suck-up to Rome, and he loses his credibility with the people. If, on the other hand, he says, no, don't pay taxes, that's idolatry, because on the coin was an image of, uh, of Herod, and it said, son of God on it, it's filthy money, right? And if, if Jesus said, no, don't pay taxes, uh, the Herodians go to Pilate, and they go to Rome, and they say, he said, don't pay taxes, he's creating a tax rebellion, arrest him. So, Here's another case where a yes or no answer is a trap. How does he answer? And by the way, in Matthew's gospel, he calls him out. He says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Let's, let's not pretend this is a fair question here at the press conference, okay? I know your motive. And here's how he answers. Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Whose image in the, I think the word image, should, it's a better translation, whose image and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's, because Caesar's image was on the coin. Now, here's how he answers. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Yep, pay your taxes. Jesus says, pay your taxes. Paul in Romans 13 says, pay your taxes. Peter says, pay your taxes. Now, if Jesus stopped there, the Pharisees would have said, ah, he's a sellout to Rome, and they would have pointed out that he lost all credibility. But he doesn't stop there. Now, here, here's what he's really saying. Um, show me a denarius, a coin, who's likeness, whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give to Caesar that which has his image, the little coin. But then he follows it up with this. And to God, render to God the things that are God's. Who's made, what's made in the image of God? You. The wholeness of who you are. The coin has Caesar's image, yeah, pay your taxes. But the bigger thing, the more important thing, is render to God that which is, has his image stamped on it. What he's doing here is he's not giving a yes or no answer. He's saying, yeah, there's a place to pay your taxes. There's a place for political involvement. Don't, but don't lose sight of the bigger picture. You, as a child of God, you're created in his image. You've been redeemed, and he is to be your all in all. Now, again, does that mean you can't talk about politics? No, it doesn't mean that. Here's what it means. Can people see that your heart is devoted to God first and foremost? Do you treat them with respect? Is Christ first? It's not 
what to, to say or don't say. It's how you say it in the essence of who you are. So, sum it up. Israel, the vineyard, is handed over to a new people. Paul says, hey, by the way, don't get proud. Those branches were broken off. You were grafted in. God could break you off. We see whole cultures have done that with, with Christian Christianity. This is a call to wake up, to repent. We talked about four areas. Ear-tickling preaching. Do you settle for it? Pornography, neutralizing an entire generation. Parenting, the responsibility to raise up our children in the Lord in political idolatry. So obsessed with that being your first love and neglecting the Lord. So the good news is his word reminds us of what is true and who he is and who we're supposed to be. And when we wake up and have ears to hear and we repent, we are forgiven. And we go back to following the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let me pray. Lord, use this parable to bring a, a godly fear in us. We pray for each individual hearing this, each church, the land, the country, the world, that we would take seriously your call to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remind us that there is forgiveness at the cross, and may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.